I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and the following program is sponsored by Oxygen. I'm Darren Karp, host of the podcast Martinis and Murder, and welcome to Oxygen's Facebook Live event, Aaron Hernandez Uncovered. Oxygen has brought an unbelievable panel together to do a deep dive into the world of Aaron Hernandez. Over two nights, Oxygen will be bringing the complex, violent world of his life to television. This is a life that reads like Greek tragedy. From modest beginnings in the working class town of Bristol, Connecticut, Aaron Hernandez rose to greatness in college football and the NFL. His triumphs, however, were ultimately undone by his personal demons. Dogged by a criminal reputation and unsavory associations, Aaron Hernandez wasn't drafted until the fourth round, earning the league minimum. But after two amazing seasons, he had established himself as one of professional football's best tight ends. At the age of 23, he had signed a $40 million contract extension with the Patriots and was a new father. But just as his idyllic life was coming together, Aaron Hernandez's dark side tore everything apart. Violent assaults, sexuality, and CTE are just some of the new insights Oxygen is exploring over this two-night event, starting March 17th at 7. To help unpack the details of the life and death of this fallen star, I'm joined by podcasters Michael Britt, host of The Psych Files... Phoebe Judge, host of Criminal, Dr. Andrew Jacobs, host of Sports Psychology Today, and Phil Perry, host of Quick Slants, the podcast. To begin this thoughtful discussion on his life, we'll be looking at some exclusive clips from Aaron Hernandez Uncovered. Aaron lost his father at a pivotal time in his life. His father was a big influence in his formative years as both a mentor and a coach. Take a look. The first time I interviewed him was after he had lost his dad. Aaron seemed to be struggling like with what to do. His dad was such a big influence on him, and he lost his dad at a really vital time in his life. It was in September of 2006. The recruitment of Aaron was real heavy at that time. A lot of schools were trying to get him to come play. The voices came from all directions. It's like, what do I do? Everyone, it seemed, wanted the best for Aaron Hernandez. Half the family told me to go here. Half my family told me to go to Notre Dame, Michigan, Miami, and my head is just going crazy. Some of his family, I think, wanted to see him stay home. Maybe they could watch him play more. Some thought he should maybe go to a big-time program, uh, get away from Connecticut, maybe. Okay, guys, how big of an impact would you think his father's death um, had on Aaron Hernandez? Well, Dan, I, I would say very significant. I mean, you're, t- you're talking about a young man in his teens, late teens, and to, uh, at a time when his life was just beginning to really just burst open. And, you know, a father can be a very grounding figure for a young man. And as we see later on, Aaron became involved with some individuals of questionable character. A father might have been a, 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 real, a real powerful force in his life. So, so it's, it's another of the many sad parts of this young man's life. I don't, I don't know how anyone can lose a father and not be impacted by it. I mean, of course, right. I think at any age it has strong implications, but certainly you can imagine any teenager to lose a father. How could you not? How could you just pick up and move on right away? I mean, you'd think that this would have some major implications. And you have to wonder who became his role model after his father left. You know, who impacted him? What kind of people had important roles in his life? Obviously, his mother and his father both played significant roles with the loss of his father, a male figure who took that place. 
And I think if you just look at it too, given where he was, and the piece mentions it, when you're being recruited at that age, it's a really emotional time for any high school athlete, and I've covered a lot of them. And you do get pulled in a lot of different directions, and you make relationships with different coaching staffs around the country, and it's a lot to process for somebody that age. And if you really have relied on your dad for your entire life to that point to help you make decisions, that would be a really, really significant loss, in my opinion. And one of the interesting things about Hernandez, Hernandez's case in particular was that his older brother was at the University of Connecticut, and maybe his dad would have steered him that way. We don't know, but maybe he would have liked to see his older brother be there and maybe help, help guide him, help be a, a presence in his life that way. Obviously, losing your father at any age is, is a tragedy, of course, but how much do you think childhood trauma influenced or lead, led to his aberrant behavior? I think any child who experiences something like this and then goes through a negative time in his life is going to have problems later on. I think the, the data shows that. And so I think it's important to have stable role models, people you can turn to for advice when you've got troubling times, troubling things going on, when you've got suspect characters in your life, maybe you can turn to somebody who is a solid figure you can get advice from. So I think this type of situation, obviously, from what we've read, probably had some kind of a, a big impact on it. So knowing what we know now, you know, Aaron shows some violent tendencies early on. He's gotten into a couple altercations. Should that have set off alarm bells for anyone that was paying attention to him at the time? Well, as a sports psychologist, I work with athletes at all levels. And one of the things I always like to say is you can see a broken arm, but you can't see a broken psyche. Eventually, you see the signs of a broken psyche come out by their behaviors and things that go on. And I think, obviously, in situations like this, I've, I've had many athletes over the years that I've worked with who've had issues. And a lot of times what I've seen is that a lot of coaches, because the athletes are great athletes at their high school, will let them get away with some things because they need them to help the team win. And oftentimes later on these, these young men and women can get in trouble. So I think it's important when somebody has an issue like this going on that they're called out for it and that, you know, the issue is dealt with rather than, than swept under the rug. And by dealing with the issue, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm a psychologist. So to me it would be counseling. It would be right. going and talking to somebody getting some advice, being able to figure out why you're acting that way, maybe get the parents involved as well, talk about what's going on, why are you acting like this, and let's find some ways to help you solve this, figure out what's right and wrong about your behavior. So when you see a young athlete, or anybody really, you know, show these warning signs, who's supposed to step in? Is it the psychologist? Is it the coach? Is it teammates? Is it friends? Is it family? Who is it? I think it can be everybody. Everybody who sees that. You know, we have an issue with mental health in our society today, so I think when you have somebody... In this type of situation, it can be a parent, it can be a coach, it can be a teammate, talking about it, communicating. A lot of people don't want to talk about mental health problems because they think there's something wrong. Well, there isn't something wrong. People have mental health problems just like they have physical problems, and it needs to be addressed. And I think with athletes especially, because of the role they play, a lot of times, well, because they're doing, you know, they're a great athlete, we don't want to deal with this because it could affect their career. When it comes to Hernandez in particular, he was really young when he got to the University of Florida. He was really young when he was drafted. And one of the things we know is that Urban Meyer tried in different ways to, to show him the way and take him under his wing, but he had teammates as well um, try to be positive influences on him, whether it was Brandon Spikes. We know he hung out with Tim Tebow, who was widely regarded as one of the most high-character guys to ever play college football. Sure. And so it seems like there were efforts made to steer him in the right direction, whether or how, or how effective those were obviously can be debated. 
Well, it's actually important to note that Urban Meyer, uh, who's the football coach at the University of Florida for those Gators, has spoken out and said that he treated Aaron Hernandez like any other player, and there was no cover-up. The Gainesville uh, PD also confirmed that they were told by Meyer to hold football players to the same standards across the board. So I think that's pretty important to note. Uh, Just wanted to switch gears a little bit. When Aaron was actually convicted of killing Odin Lloyd, his partner, Shay, was pulled away from her sister, who was dating Lloyd at the time. Aaron had also been friends with Odin at the time of his death. This web of overlapping relationships really came to a head when Aaron was convicted. Take a look. And now, here Shanae was having to testify against uh, her sister's fiancé for killing her boyfriend. That obviously led to this really interesting dynamic. You had Shiana Jenkins and Shania Jenkins, the two sisters who were on absolute polar opposites of this murder trial. Shayana stood by her man and Shania stood by Odin Lloyd's family. Talk about tough family conflict. Um, talk about the layers of this tragedy and how it sort of affected the relationship between Shay and Aaron. Well, I, I mean, I, it doesn't get more dramatic than that. I right. can't imagine for either sister sitting in a courtroom on the, either side of the aisle. I mean, I don't think you could write something like that. It has every layer you could imagine. And I think it probably only heightened uh, the despair for both sisters that they were now pulled apart from each other because they were both on other sides of the aisle. The, re- the sisters' relationship is obviously a part of it. I think even when you just look at Aaron's story in a vacuum, I mean, this was a guy who seemingly had everything at the time of Odin Lloyd's death. He had just signed a big contract with the Patriots. Birth of his daughter had just occurred. He was recently engaged, and he seemed to be enjoying life. When I covered him early in his career, he was kind of, in some ways, the class clown of the Patriots locker room, joking around with teammates. He did have friends on the team. Uh, You know, I remember doing stories where Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski, they came into the league together. Uh, They played the same position. They would give each other a hard time. Well, I was better at this event at the Combine than you were, and I was faster than you, but I was stronger than you. Um, And he had good relationships in that locker room, and everything seemed to be coming together, and we spoke to him after some of these really big events in his life, after signing the contract, after the birth of his daughter, who was actually born on his birthday. And he was as proud as ever in some of those moments. But going back and looking at some of his comments, it's really interesting because he would say things like, I know now I can't be reckless Aaron anymore, after both instances. And it was almost as if he didn't trust himself with all he had been given. He knew the ramifications of some of these responsibilities that were being heaped upon him. And it sounded like he knew he needed to change in some ways. We obviously didn't really know what that meant at the time, but looking back, it's almost eerie. What do you think was going through Shania's mind, you know, seeing her sister sort of side with her, fiance Aaron Hernandez, of course, at the time, and being on the other side of it, what do you think was going through her mind? One of the things that I I noticed going along with what Phoebe said is, and and the special points this out much later, is is how very different these two women are. Right. Uh, Shown, and of course we don't really know them, but as uh, the special said, um, Shania dressed somewhat like a a stereotypical school teacher or or, or a librarian. 
whereas Shayana was, was much more elaborately dressed. They just seem, and, and of course they never said anything to each other, um, it, the tension must have been unbelievable. You can, sort of te- you can sort of sense it in the room, you know, when you're watching the special, just how polar opposites mm-hmm. of the side that they are. Do you guys think Aaron Hernandez should have um, taken the stand at trial? I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I think, in, you know, Phoebe maybe could speak to this uh, with a little bit more expertise, but from what I understand, if somebody in that situation were to take the stand, it's up to the jury to decide, okay, well, it, you know, who's, who's more in the right? Is it the person who's trying to defend himself, or um, is it, in, in this case, the government, the state? Um, there's sort of an interesting interplay there. And so that, I, I think his legal team in the first go-around probably did the right thing in not having him take the stand. Do you agree, Phoebe? Well, I mean, I think it opens whoever's on the stand up to a lot of questions, you know, because we aren't supposed to lie on the stand, and so whoever's up there is, has an obligation to tell the truth, and you don't, you don't know what the prosecution is going to ask. And so I... I don't know what I don't know what the defining factor was in not having him take the stand. I mean, he, there are also people he might have said, you know, I don't want to do it, you know, right. and maybe he was so distraught and upset about the whole situation that his defense seemed. I, I don't think it's smart if we get him up up there. I don't think we know what really happened behind the scenes. Right. We don't know, but we know he was a very charismatic, such a likable guy. He it might have worked out if if he had gotten up there, at, you know, in terms of the jury really taking to him. On the other hand, we know now that he was suffering from a severe case of CTE, which means that his his ability to think straight and, you know, comport himself in that situation might not have been good at all. So I think ultimately it probably wasn't. I mean, it was probably a good decision not to have him. Interesting. Well, Jose Baez was actually Aaron's defense attorney in the double homicide case for which Aaron was ultimately found not guilty by the jury as they didn't find sufficient evidence to convict. To this day, Jose maintains that Aaron was in fact innocent of these charges. This time, the defense had the secret weapon, Jose Baez. This team compared to the other one. They fight, and Jose, he doesn't like to lose, and he fights hard. I believe in redemption. I wouldn't be where I'm at if it weren't for second chances. And I I sometimes think people make mistakes and they regret them. Doesn't necessarily mean they have to pay for them for the rest of their life. Jose Baez seems like the guy who can talk the talk and walk the walk. Um, How crucial was the acquisition of Jose Baez to Aaron Hernandez's uh, case? Well, he's a very confident guy, as you point out. And I think at one point he says that there there simply is not enough evidence to to even even think about him being guilty. And and I watched, you know, by this point I'm like, wow, gee. I mean, I've already seen it. I think that came at the end. I've already seen about an hour and a half of this. <laughs> I mean, I'm going, wow, that's convincing. Oh, boy, that's damaging. Oh, you know, the, I mean, the evidence to me was mounting up. Not so good. So, but he, you know, but he, you know, he's got that kind of charismatic uh, lawyer-type approach where he you know, says it, and you, you kind of believe him. So. I think he did a really good job in terms of having the jury question the credibility of Alexander Bradley, who was the star witness in that right. second case and was in the car, you know, allegedly at the time of, 
of everything that went down in the South End in Boston um, with Aaron Hernandez. And he was very well prepared. The state did a good job on that end. Uh, but he was a guy who had a criminal past himself. Um, and I think Baez not only highlighted that, but highlighted some of the statements that Bradley had made in terms of all the mechanics of the shooting and how it could have gone down. And, okay, well, how did Aaron reach over you? And mm -hmm. That was a really good point. Was his whole body outside the window or was yeah. it just his arm? And are right. you really remembering mm -hmm. this the way that you say you are? And between that and Bradley's background, that did enough, obviously, in, in the eyes of the jury to... Um, you know, to, to allow Hernandez to get off as not guilty. Yeah, that, I think that part really was making me, that's when I started to think, well, maybe, oh, maybe he's got some, maybe he's right. That whole, was his whole arm out of it? So how am I, you know. He's completely it, charismatic. Yeah. I mean, he is, mm -hmm. he is dancing in the courtroom. He's acting right. as though he's on a three-legged pony that, you know, and he was acting as the state, and, there, and Bradley was the three-legged pony, and they were going to try to ride him all the way home. And that mm -hmm. yeah. stood out in a lot of people's minds as the, as the trial was going on, was, wow, this guy is just totally over the top, but it worked. Do you, all of you now, do you guys believe that Aaron may in fact be innocent of these charges? Well, there's just so much... You know, we, there's so much pointing in the direction, but then at the last minute, as, as, the, as the special points out, don't have a gun, uh, you know, we, we, we don't have a, a witness. Was he there? Okay, looks like it, but... So in the end, I don't know, I, I was really a, a, well, a little bit surprised at the, at the uh, conviction. Given You're talking the, about the first trial. The first trial, yeah. The first trial, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. There, there just was no, I don't know. So you tell, I mean, you don't have a gun, and you, he was there, but you, you don't know if he was the one who pushed, who, uh, you know, pushed the trigger. So how, can you, how do you come back with guilty on that? Yeah, I think the right answer is uh, I don't know. I mean, there's so many things in this case that makes it tragic and also incredibly interesting and pulls you. You hear one thing, you go this way. You hear the other thing, you go that way. And I... <clears throat> I don't know. I don't, I don't think anybody can definitively say who pulled the trigger because there hasn't been just direct evidence, but um, I, I don't know. Yeah, and the fact that, you know, in the Lloyd case, the two men that Hernandez was with didn't want to testify. They wouldn't talk about it. So all of mm. a sudden, there are, there are no witnesses. They couldn't find the murder weapon in that situation. And can circumstantial evidence be really convincing? Obviously, it was in that case. He was, he was convicted of that crime, um, but it's still circumstantial. And then in the second case, again, there was, there was essentially one witness that was, that was there to speak. There was another man who was shot in that, the double homicide who survived, um, but they had a witness there in that case, and it, it wasn't enough. So it's interesting to look at how the two cases were different and how they played out. Do you think if Aaron had Jose Baez for the Odin Lloyd trial, it would have been a different conviction? Or do you think the evidence was so overwhelming? I think a different, different conviction. Yeah. I'm All interested of you? to hear what Phoebe would Well, I don't say. know yeah. if it would be a different conviction. I think that what Jose Baez had is he'd represented an, a number of high-profile clients. <clears throat> and I think that no matter what, when you have a, a murder trial that has 
a case that's widely known in the public, it, it changes it. It changes some aspects of how you defend someone. And so I think that, I don't know if it would have changed it, but I think that Jose Baez did have experience in cases where there was just a lot of public attention. And there are a lot of murder cases which don't get that level of attention. And so the person who's on the stand doesn't have any reputation that anyone might know of in the outside world. Of course, the jury gets to know it. But um, so I think that's maybe something that Jose Baez could have brought to that first trial. Is having a good lawyer and evidence either for or against you, like, do they hold the same weight? Or is it really about the evidence, or is it more about the lawyer that you have representing that evidence? I mean, evidence doesn't lie. I think it can in some cases, but <laughs> strong evidence is, I think, always going to be your, your best bet. But certainly a well-informed lawyer. I mean, that's why we have lawyers, sure. because we recognize that we can't do this all by ourselves, you know, for, for a number of reasons. So I think a good lawyer can have a, a great difference in any case. Especially, I mean, we know that we are, we are influenced by charismatic people. And um, just the same way the juries are influenced by eyewitnesses who really aren't that good. But, you know, if you believe in what you saw and, and you're passionate about it, even if you did not see it at all, uh, the jury believes we, we believe each other, you know, and, and we, are, we are attracted to people who are powerful personalities. Yeah, and how, how it would have played out, I think, you know, it's really anybody's guess. I, I wonder if you ask Baez what he would say, but right. we know he's a very confident guy, and I wonder if that charisma would have come across, and if he really would have hammered some of those facts that we, uh, some of those factors that we talked about earlier, where there's no weapon, there's no witness that's willing to And there's to go no over, motivation. And there's, there I mean, was really no I mean, still, solid yeah. motive. In yeah, that that's what, um, that's why I just, I, I don't know why he came out guilty because I thought, I mean, what do I know? <laughs> but I watch enough shows to, you know, to know that you need motivation. Uh, and, and I don't think that was well established. Well, we know that Aaron's life ends in tragedy uh, with his suicide. How likely do you guys think that Aaron's suicide was his final attempt at providing for his wife and child in the light of the Massachusetts law that voids convictions for which appeals have not been exhausted? This is a really delicate one. Obviously, we, don't, we can't know, but it sounds like, and it, it's been reported that you know, he was maybe asking about this law in particular before, um, before his death. And I think, I, I don't know, but financially could that have been playing in his mind? You know, if okay, I get off for one of these charges, will all of a sudden my family be able to benefit from that financially? Because again, he had signed a long-term deal. That deal that he signed would have actually carried him through this upcoming NFL season with the Patriots, which is crazy to think about because wow. it seems like it happened so long ago, but it was a long-term deal. It was a lot of money, um, especially for somebody who got drafted in the fourth round where he wasn't given the amount of money that, say, a first or a second rounder would have been given um, had he been taken in those rounds, which is probably where he should have gone based off of how talented he was. And so maybe that was playing in the back of the mind. Hey, can I take care of Shea? Can I take care of my daughter if I am let off of this charge? And if that was the only way he's could foresee that happening, um, who knows, but maybe that was playing in the back of his mind. All right, and I'll provide a, uh, the, the alternative to, to that, which is that's a lot of thinking. That is, that is a lot of forethought. 
and we haven't gotten to the CTE part of this, but we know that you know, damage to the frontal lobes uh, significantly impairs your ability to, to do that kind of thing, that sort of forethought. And so did he have the ability to, to think clearly through the ramifications of, well, if I, if I commit suicide, then this will happen and that will happen? Um, there's an easier explanation, which is that many uh, people who suffer from CTE do commit suicide. So, uh, well, some. So I think that's a that's maybe a better explanation. Well, no? they they can it doesn't mean they will. Right. Oh yeah. But it's associated with. There there's there's obviously data that people football players who've had CT have committed suicide. You have Junior Seau, Dave Dorson, but neither of them killed anybody else. They just killed themselves. Good point. So obviously, of course, that's what suicide is. But in this situation, obviously, I think you have to look in, in this situation with Hernandez's background and all the the the, the variety of, of times that there were issues with him where he got in trouble, but nothing was ever done. The thing that concerns me is why wasn't anything done to help him? And that's the thing that, that, that bothers me the most about this. We, I mean, we don't know. Let's go back to high school after his father died. Were there incidents where maybe he did get in trouble we don't know about because he was the star football player? Were those swept under the rug because, well, we don't want to damage his career? I have incidents. I deal with this all the time in my practice. I just talked to a volleyball coach two days ago who had a young man who robbed her store for the third time. And he has a college scholarship offer to play basketball, and the, she wants to turn him in to the police. She's had people come to her, don't turn him into the police, you're going to jeopardize a scholarship. She goes, I was just robbed of $5,000. Know, and, and when is he going to take responsibility? Right, where's the line in that? In these situations, there's, there's a, a young man who went to my son's high school who had several DUIs his senior year in high school. But he, would, he got a full-ride scholarship, and he ended up playing. He wasn't ever punished in high school because he was the star of the basketball team. He went to college, got kicked off his first team, went to another college, and then left that team. If he had been disciplined for the DUIs, maybe that made a difference. So I think you have to look at the fact with a lot of athletes who are star athletes, not all of them, obviously, but there's a small minority of athletes who are very, very good but get away with things because of the stars of the team. High school coaches don't want to discipline them because they want to lose. Right. They want to win. They get to college. These same situations happen. There's thousands of dollars being paid for these young men and young women's education. What's being done for them psychologically to help them out to deal with the adjustment? And it's a big adjustment. Aaron wasn't accused of anything, though, in high school. He, he had no right. allegations against him in right. any sort of way. Nothing so we know about. Nothing we know about. Nothing ever happens. We're not, we're not sure. It's all just speculation. Of, uh, right. I'm, and I'm, same I'm, with Urban Meyer. I mean, right. he was sort of cleared, never said anything. Treated Nothing, everyone the right. same way. It all seemed copacetic for the most part. I do think there's so much more information out there about mental health. Uh, there's so much, there are so many teams that I think are, are better educated about those kinds of things now, whether it's at the college level or at the, at the pro level, definitely, that I think there are measures. I think we're in a better place now in 2018 than maybe we were 20 years ago when it comes to those kinds of things. And is there still room to grow in that regard? Definitely. Sure. And I'm sure you could speak to that. But I think when it comes to getting players help, especially at the pro level where there's so much invested in these guys and there's so much money involved, it's an investment really back in the team when you're willing to spend that kind of time and energy and effort. Um, and I think the smartest teams in any professional sport really take care when it comes to those types of things. Well, and I, Urban Meyer has said that, that he was looking out for Aaron's mental health and you know, treated him like any other player, almost like a family member. Well, I, I, think, I think the issue comes down to what Phil was saying especially, okay? I started working as a sports psychologist 37 years ago, and I've seen changes. When I first started, no one wanted to deal with this. 
It's hocus pocus. It's a bunch of witchcraft. We don't want to deal with this. Now you're seeing most professional, not all, but most professional teams have someone on staff. And I think it's important with the adjustment that these young men make from high school to college. I think colleges should have mental health professionals, sports psychology specialists, for especially football and basketball teams, as well as soccer, baseball, softball, it doesn't matter. But be able to work with the athletes and help them make that adjustment from high school to college. And then going to the professional level, especially with the money and all the people that start to become friends who they never knew before, have an adjustment period where they learn how to deal with these things. And it, it, you know, the, the mental side, I always like to say you can have two athletes who are physically the same, but the one with a stronger mind will come out on top. And that's not just in terms of their performance, it's in terms of their behavior as well. Well, we talked a little about CTE, and I kind of want to get into that next. Uh, since Aaron's death, there's been new info brought to light that leaves more questions than answers. Medical researchers confirmed Aaron had stage 3 CTE at the time of his death, which, based on current medical knowledge, is a really severe case for someone his age. Aaron's suicide in prison raises additional questions about his sexuality and things he may have been keeping from those closest to him. I think there were multiple signs of CTE in Aaron's background. I think Aaron tried to bottle it up inside as he was fighting what he couldn't really understand was happening to him. If the defense was aware of Aaron's CTE condition in the Odin Lloyd trial, this would have further mitigated and completely absolved any legal responsibility for Aaron. Well, since CTE can kind of only be diagnosed via autopsy, we can't necessarily pinpoint how and when it affected his life. Um, But do we know the relationship between CTE and violent decision-making, as you were kind of positing before? Do we know that relationship very well? How close is it? I I think you may be more the expert. Well, I mean, there's there's obviously the research is is very minimal right now in terms of CTE. We're just learning all about it. But we're finding out that obviously most of the people who suffer from CTE have memory issues, they have cognitive issues, they have, and there, there are episodes of violent behavior that come out. And so I think it becomes more and more important to understand, I think as we do, as the research continues on this, to try to find out you know, what causes it, what part of the brain is, is affected by this the most, and what we can try to do to help these individuals. I think part of that's also, as I said earlier, I think the importance of, of having someone to talk to to deal with these feelings. A lot of the, I know I've worked with several ex-NFL players, retired players, who are concerned that they may end up with CTE, they're concerned about their behavior, they're concerned about their relationships, their marriage, their families, they want to work on their emotions and deal with them and keep them under control. There's a lot that's being done, I know, at the professional football level and at the college level as well, and you can even go all the way down to Pop Warner in terms of trying to limit head injuries in the sport, whether that's using different sorts of equipment when it comes to tackling drills, when it comes to just teaching better technique. That has become a significant, significant emphasis over the last handful of years because people know what some of the risks are when it comes to head injuries. I would say that when it comes to CTE, as far as I understand it, we're really still sort of in the infancy stages of understanding all of the ramifications and understanding how the picture all comes together, Um, you know, what types of people suffer from it, what could cause it. There are people... um, you know, that have experienced epilepsy in life, and it's been found later that they have symptoms that, that uh, appear to be CTE-like. Same goes for drug users. So there's still a lot that needs to be done when it comes to the research uh, around that issue and, and how it impacts people while they're alive. And it's, yeah. not I mean, just, it totally... it's not just with football players. It's with athletes who have any, any contact, you know, where they're going to have. I, I know of swimmers who've gotten concussions when they'll swim into the wall. They'll hit their head on the wall. Volleyball players who've fallen down and hit their head. So it happens in a lot of sports where, the, where head injuries happen, 
So I think the, the research is going to expand in a lot of different sports. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on where, you know, where I mean, uh, some of these you know, sub-concussive or repetitive uh, injuries could occur in a variety of places on your head. And so, I mean, if it's frontal lobe, what effect will that have? Well, not only does it have an effect on your ability to, to think and to plan, but also to manage your emotions. And this is the last part of our brain that develops. And um, I recently heard uh, something I, I think we ought to think a lot more about, which is the idea of being a teenager. We think you're done with being a teenager when, you, when you're 20. But really, since your brain's not done until about 24, 25, your ability to manage your emotions is, is still not quite in control. So damage to the frontal lobe is really bad, but we've heard about damage to the amygdala. That's the emotional center of the brain. Uh, the hippocampus, that's memory. Um, but do we, can we, while you're still alive, uh, say, well, that, this, your experience today on the court, you know, we were, we were detecting uh, you know, a, 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 an injury at this part in your brain, and we think it's strictly bad enough that you, we ought to take you out. We're just not at that point yet, although I've seen some amazing technology um, improvements in and, uh, and, and one of the things, obviously, CT comes from head trauma. Right. So in sports, you want to minimize head trauma as much as possible. Obviously, football is the one sport where you're going to get the most, most of that. I mean, soccer, there are headers with, with soccer balls and head collisions that happen all the time. So I think you want to try to minimize that. I know the helmet companies are really working on research to try to make the helmets a lot safer, you know, to try to minimize the, the movement of the brain and things like that. But we're still in the infancy with all this, and I think we're going to find changes as in the next 10 to 15 years with how all this is developed. Do you think the knowledge of CTE now, like this is the turning point for impact sports? Like this is where people are going to change, change equipment, change how we're practicing or training? Is this what's going to be the turn it all around? Is, I think this has been coming for a while. I don't think the Hernandez case is, is a turning point, you know, when it comes to this, this issue. The league has been kicking around ideas in terms of how to make the sport safer. They've, they've kicked around the idea of even making position-specific helmets to help people limit head injuries. So I think there is a lot being done there, and I think it's been moving that way for a while now, well before Aaron Hernandez's um, death. Well, yeah, and, Junior, and Seau, Junior Seau was probably yeah, the most a, prominent player, right, right, to commit suicide. I mean, an all-pro, right. great, a great individual, but his entire life was playing football. So if you go back and do research on him, and when he was a kid in San Diego, he grew up playing football at USC. That's all he did. Then when his career was over... I remember reading a comment about him. I don't know what to do now. All I know is football. Right. So you wonder how much all of that affected him. And that's where I think not, there need to be educational programs for a lot of for, for football players when they retire to help them make the adjustment in their life to deal with these issues. Well, and is that a situation like Junior Seau's, was that because he had CTE or did he have issues before or would he have had issues had he not been a football player? Like th- these are things that we still... Well, one of my favorite advancements in this area is the smart mouthpiece. Have you heard about these? No. That sounds, is it highly intelligent as a a Uh, mouthpiece? Well, it is basically, as one researcher put it, it's like having a smartphone in your mouth. Because as you you may or may not know, your smartphone has a lot of different capabilities. It knows when you're shaking it. For example, when you turn it, it has an accelerometer, it has a gyroscope. Of course, it has GPS. Well, what I've seen these early these these early model um, mouthpieces, and they have all kinds of all that equipment in here. So imagine, I mentioned we said a long time ago, is we don't know where you might have suffered the concussion. But if you had a mouthpiece 
that was basically monitoring. It's a part now of your skull because you're, you know, chomping down on it. Right. Fitbit for your skull and your mouth is sort of what it is. Yeah, okay, I got it. it. That way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it, it could more, more closely identify where the trauma occurred uh, during the game. So, I mean, I mean it's amazing the, the amount of money and technology that we will bring to this and have brought to this. You mentioned the, the helmets. Um, but it's still going to be, uh, you know, people are still hitting each other in the head. You know, it's still a sport we have to really, really pay attention to. Um, I had a conversation over the weekend with a couple of friends, uh, Patrice and Allison Jones, and they were pointing out, look, uh, and I think maybe you mentioned this too, Andrew, that if I'm a parent, my son's 18, but if, he, if he's eight years old, do I have him go into uh, Pop Warner? I, I probably would not, but that's because I'm not worried about, I'm not interested in getting a scholarship. I don't need it to get out of my circumstances. If you come from a more impoverished background, you might be more willing to just sort of say, well, you know, you don't, you look the other way. You know, we're seeing today there are more and more kids starting sports at younger and younger ages. And it's important to really realize why that's starting. And it's about money. There are leagues being, mm-hmm. there's somebody making money. Yep. There are leagues Autumn. being formed, uh, coaches being paid, uniforms being sold. A lot of it's about the money. And the concern now with so many people is sports specialization for kids at younger ages. And a lot of these injuries coming on, not, not just from CTE, but in baseball, there's, there's shoulder injuries, elbow injuries because of overuse. So I think we're, we're exploring now a new area in sports in terms of the, the physical and mental combined about the future, where we're going to go, and how we can prevent a lot of these things from happening and, and do more research into that. And not every parent, you know, has... Not every kid or parent wants their kid to just do it to get a scholarship or to get money advantages. I mean, sometimes they're just really into the sport and want to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. As a parent, as an adult, you know, what would you say to a kid who just genuinely wants to be in football? Are you warning them already about, you know, what could potentially happen? Are you teaching them different tackle techniques? What is Mm -hmm. the solution to this? Well, if I could start. The first thing to me, if you're going to start, want to enroll your child in any sport. I don't care if it's male or female. The goal should be to have fun, learn skills, learn right. fundamentals, and enjoy, enjoy the sport. The winning and losing should become irrelevant. We just found out in Norway, which won 39 medals in the Olympics, they don't keep score until age 13 in any sport. Well, does that have something to do with the fact they won 39 medals in the Olympics far and away more than anybody else? In my opinion, yeah, it does. I think we spend too much emphasis in this country on score, on winning, and not about having fun and learning skills. And I think if you're taught football the right way, and you will know this as, as someone who deals with football, if you're taught it the right way, it's a great sport. If you're taught right tackling techniques, but if you do it the wrong way, problems can happen. I think it's important to note, too, if you want your child to play sports, which there are all kinds of redeeming qualities to playing sports, being, sure. whether it be individual or on a team, it's going to be very difficult for that child to move through life without suffering any kind of injury. And even depending on the sport, there's a, there's a chance that they'll suffer a head injury, whether it is soccer, whether it is basketball. I've covered, like I said, i covered high school sports and saw concussions in all of those sports, boys and girls. And so, you know, football has this stigma now, but I think if you're teaching it the right way, whether it's the techniques and the coaching has to be right, um, but I still think that, you know, it's okay to let your kid play the sport that they feel like 
you know, you feel okay with, you feel comfortable with, and they feel comfortable with as well, as long as everybody's trying to be as safe as possible. And in the book that I just recently wrote with an ex-Major League Baseball player and an Olympic coach, we identify these issues and talk about this because it's, it's becoming a problem with a lot of parents who enroll their kids at younger and younger ages because they want to win. They want to get that scholarship. They want to advance their kids. And I think the idea should be about having fun and safety and learning skills, as I said, as the primary reason. And then, you know, when you get to be middle school, junior high age, that's when the score starts to become an issue and, and we're winning and losing start to become issues and you need to learn from that. Right. But prior to that should be having fun and enjoying the experience. And, and I think today we've gotten so much into the score and winning and crazy parents at these games and we've got to win and yelling and screaming. It, it, you're losing the excitement and the fun of what the sport should be about. When it comes to football, I know one thing that has gotten big in the last few years has been flag football for younger kids. And some parents will say, you know what, I would like to hold my kid out from tackle football until they get to high school. And that way, even if their brains maybe aren't fully formed, if you do run into a head injury, maybe you're better able to withstand it or recover from it because you're just you're older. Um, and so I know that there's that has been a movement in the last few years, and so maybe that's an option and allows parents and kids to still participate in the sport and maybe do it. Yeah, I would agree. See, I would get a hold of him and say, what questions should I ask my kid's coach, you know, to find out what what does he plan on, how is he going to approach tackling and all those kinds of things. Well, and to be fair, we don't really know where in Aaron's life the CTE came into play because Mm -hmm. it was after, unfortunately, he had passed. Um, But I actually want to shift gears to this idea of toxic masculinity, which we had sort of kind of discussed earlier. Um, It's been in the press recently. It's kind of everywhere. How do you think that played into Aaron's life trajectory? How much toxic masculinity was really affecting his life? Can we get a definition for toxic masculinity? From you. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want me to do it because I'm a lesbian, so I'm going to say something different. Um, I would say locker room talk. You know, guys are very uh, tough on each other. I think there's this stigma, certainly from my point of view, um, that how men treat each other, and you want to be the toughest, the most testosterone, the guy to get the most girls to do this, to do that. Um, And I'm sure this happens in football locker rooms. I'm sure this happens in a lot of different locker rooms. How is that affecting you as a young player? You know, is there social pressure as well as professional pressure? What... What was going on in his life? I would say from being in an NFL locker room, it's a fascinating place because during the season you have about 60 players, give or take. Uh, Training camp is even more than that. You're you're closer to 100 when you're talking about players with injuries and then 90 on the roster. And I say it's fascinating because I think more so than any other sport, it, it brings together people from all kinds of different backgrounds, rich, poor, inner city, rural, you know, other countries are starting to get involved. And, you know, the Patriots for a long time had a a player from Germany, Sebastian Vollmer. And I think there are more and more people coming um, from outside of the country who are playing. And so in that way, I think those locker rooms are really unique. And I think it fosters a lot of interesting discussion back and forth, um, particularly politically. Uh, I know that the do we stand or do we kneel for the anthem conversation is one that's been had across the league and been um, has happened, I think, in a very civil way, in a very thoughtful way, especially in the Patriots locker room, haven't spoken to some of those guys, because they are, there are many players who have different viewpoints when it comes to that one particular issue, and they can talk about it, and they can still be friends with each other, and they can still play on the field together. I would say when it comes to things like um, sexuality, I don't know where an NFL locker room is 
at this point in time in 2018 when it comes to that kind of topics. I don't know how often those sorts of topics are discussed. I think it speaks volumes that we still don't know how many gay players are in the league. We, you know, it feels as though that is still sort of a taboo topic, and it may be just that players don't want to talk about it. Maybe they don't want to be thought of as that guy. They don't want all the media coverage that would be associated with that if they stood up and said, hey, I'm an NFL player and I'm gay. Um, but that, to me, is, is still one place, again, not knowing what's going on inside the locker room. When we're let in there, it's about 45-minute windows, um, right. you know, three or four times a week. And so I don't know everything that gets said in there, but I would say that's probably one area where there's, there is still plenty of room to grow. I would say as, as a team psychologist at the Kansas City Royals and professional soccer teams at Kansas City, I've, I've been part of the locker room. I've, been my, I've had a locker in there. And the conversations that go on amongst these guys, I have not been a team psychologist with a football team. I've worked with dozens of football players, professional football players. I've been in NFL locker rooms before. The conversations that go on amongst these young men are the same conversations that will go on at the bar down the street by men that age. It's not really because I'm a football player, I'm a baseball right. player, I'm more macho than you. Same conversations, they talk about their families, they talk about life, they talk about their friends, their girlfriends, whatever. Sexuality comes up, sexual conquests come up, yes, but it's, it's not the priority that goes on. Most, mostly, what I've seen is the game that's coming up. How are we going to do well today? That's the main focus, and they'll, and they'll talk about their families. That's the thing I hear more than anything else in locker rooms. But don't you, don't you agree, because we had a chance to talk to this a little bit earlier, that if, if I'm a player um, and, and I feel dizzy and I feel like maybe I ought to take myself out, I probably won't take myself out. One of the main issues, Michael, that professional athletes have is this word. It has four letters, fear. 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 Mm-hmm. Fear of injury, fear of retirement, fear of ex- exposure of something about themselves. They don't want people to know. Okay, Fear. I mean, they're in the spotlight, and today with social media the way it is now, and, and you know that as well, you're in the media. I mean, it, it's everything you do, everybody knows. But I'm afraid, my hypothetical person is afraid, I'm afraid I'm, guys are going to say, you know, what a loser. You took yourself out of the game? I mean, that's toxic masculinity. Well, you know, you've got a weakness. I think there's more knowledge, and you, you know this in the NFL a lot, there's more knowledge today about injuries, the importance of injuries. There are guys that won't tackle Right? There are guys that won't go, won't go after some players, and the teammates know who they are. But I think today, somebody taking themselves out of a game because of a weakness, that, that doesn't happen that I often. I think that's, that's maybe a little bit anachronistic in that from the players I know in that locker room, I, I don't know if I've, I could ever remember an instance where one player has gotten down on another for taking himself out of a game because he's injured. Because they understand, because they know they could be next. And they know that there are a lot of factors involved to every decision that you make and that your body is really your primary asset. And if you need to take an extra day to make sure you're good so that when we're on the field together, you can do everything you need to do to help me, then that's great. And they have relationships with each other, too. They treat each other as human beings. They're friends with each other. They don't want guys to do anything that's going to impact their lives off of football because they understand what that's all about, too. They understand they have families. They understand they're doing things off the field as well. That's from, that's from my experience. Mm-hmm. That may be happening in places around the league. Again, I can't come up with a, a situation where I've looked at it and said, I know this guy is pissed at this guy because he won't step on the field for practice today. And but what about what, taking yourself league. out when you, if you think there's a guy behind me who's going to take my spot or... I need this scholarship. I can't take myself. I think that plays into the fear aspect, yeah, for sure. And fear. I do think that is an issue. And I think players will push to come back 
more quickly than they should at times. Um, now, or, they there are, or they won't admit an injury because they don't want, they want to come out. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's getting harder and harder to hide these days, too, because there's so much that, there are so many eyeballs on you between coaches and trainers and team doctors, and there's, even, there's more quantifiable information in the NFL now than ever before where they can see how fast you're running based on a GPS that they put in your shirt before practice. And if all of a sudden you're two or three miles an hour slower the next day, they're going to come find you and see what's up. So that part of it is tougher, but I do think players will certainly go out of their way to say, I need to stay on the field as much as I can because I want to keep my job. Yeah, I mean, the average, the average life of an NFL player is less than four years. So you're not going to be playing that long. Then what happens to you? So you want to play as long as you can to make as much money as you can. I mean, I, I remember years ago had a, a Major League Baseball player who wasn't playing, playing well. There was something not right with him. And he and I sat down and talked, and he says, Doc, something's wrong with my elbow. I said, well, you've been in the training room? Doc, you know pussies go in the training room. I'm not a pussy. Excuse my language, but that's what he said, quote, unquote. I said, well, you know what? Smart pussies go in the training room. You're going in there now. I made him go in there. Two days later, he had Tommy John surgery in his elbow. So how long ago was that? About six, seven years ago. I mean, the, the fact is, the players, and he's still playing. Okay, he had the surgery, he's still playing. But, right, players don't want to take themselves out because they want to keep playing for fear their career's going to end. Hmm. Okay, so injuries are a big, you know. But what you just described by that manager is toxic masculinity, though. If he's going to say only losers take themselves out. That, that's what, I mean, yeah, aside from well, the P it, word, that's based, what he said, based right? Based on how Darren defined, yeah. I mean, and there are obviously people like that, but everybody isn't that way. Okay, and toxic masculinity in terms of taking yourself out of a game about being tough, physically tough or mentally tough. I mean, that's why I said earlier, the one with the stronger mind is going to want to come out on top. And eventually you have to learn, you know, I talk about preparation, focus, attitude, and confidence is the key to success. And along the lines with those words, we talk a lot about fear. Fear of your career ending, fear of failure, fear of succeeding. Okay, and professional athletes have all these issues. They're human beings just like we are. But people put them on pedestals because they're superior physically. But psychologically, they've got the same issues they've got to deal with just as we do. And a lot of them haven't been trained to deal with a lot of these things. They've been able to get by middle school, high school, college because physically they're superior. When they get to professional level, everybody's sort of the same physically. And then it's where this comes in. And that plays a big role. And that's to get back to those, you know, the injuries and the CTE. That's where I think we're just starting to find more about this. And we're going to find more as more, as more and more research occurs. Well, there's a lot to unpack, obviously, with Aaron Hernandez himself. What is a lesson, and I want all of you guys to answer this, that we can sort of take away from this tragedy? What, sh- what should we learn from this? Michael? <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have sat to your left. Yeah, you're starting it off, man. <laughs> the biggest lesson? Well, I, you know, I'm encouraged when Phil says that things are changing. So you're, you, you are not seeing as much of what we would refer to as toxic masculinity. I don't think so. Uh, but again... I'm not a player, I'm not in there, and so I, I don't understand it fully. But from what I can gather, having covered the league for six or seven years now, I would say it's in a better place now than even when I started. Well, that, that's good to hear. I mean, I, I, I guess my coming into this, I'm, I'm thinking we still don't bring up our boys right. I think we still bring them up to be very to stay away from their feelings, and, and I'm sure you would agree with that too, because who's going to go see a therapist, or even a medical doctor, a, 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 a boy and men, you know, we're just, and that's why we have Me Too, and, and that's why we have Time's Up. I mean, we, we, we're just not, 
allowing men to have full access to their feelings. Um, so that's what I think we have learned from this. Very well said, Phoebe. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think we can speculate on what was going on in Aaron Hernandez's head or how free. I mean, something happened, and I don't know when it happened, but something happened to make this terrible chain of events go on. And and I think it impacted a, a lot of people. It's sad for Aaron Hernandez, but it's also incredibly sad for the victims, you know, and, and for his, the families that he's impacted. So I think something happened. I don't know what it is. We can speculate all day long, but um, he didn't get the help that he needed and that might have stopped everything from happening. First. And let me just interrupt to say that there may have been some... Now you're hyper- not done. Now you're not done. Yeah. <laughs> we did not let Phoebe speak as much as we should have. Us three men, we were just talking away. And so I apologize. Is that toxic masculinity? I don't I was know. Well, about it could have been. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why you're sitting next to Darren Downer. <laughs> yeah. I agree with what Phoebe said. And I, I, obviously, as a psychologist, mental health is my profession. I feel we don't deal enough with that. And we're getting better at it. But I think the psychological issues in our country, you know, we're, we have all kinds of mental health issues in our country today. People need to be dealt with better. And I think teaching, as Michael said, teaching about feelings, expressing them, learning to understand them at younger and younger ages needs to be better educated for boys as well as girls. People, I mean, athletes are people. They get dressed the same way the rest of us do. They may put on a uniform instead of, instead of work clothes, but they're st- they do everything the same way. And so I think learning how to deal with their feelings is just as important as it is for everybody else. From what I think we've learned from this is we need to learn more about CTE. We need to learn more about emotion. And I think we need to help young athletes, young people, when they have issues and problems and get them help and don't push them aside or let them get by because they're superior at something. Deal with emotions and feelings, and that's something we've got to do a better job of. I just remember when Hernandez was arrested following Odin Lloyd's murder, just being shocked because this was a guy that I had talked to in the Patriots locker room that a lot of us in the media felt like we knew a little bit, um, but we obviously didn't know him well. And I think it's really hard to see signs, even though now we look back on it and maybe we can try to pinpoint signs here or there, different spots in his life. It's really, really difficult to do that. And so I guess if there's a lesson, it would just, for people to to listen um, and for if, for people, if they're having issues the way Aaron was, maybe to feel more comfortable just to reach out for help because it's, he had all kinds of resources at his disposal. We've been over it between all the money involved that he was paid, everything, you know, all the support he had from college through the pros. Um, you know, I think for both sides there was something that could have been done there, but it's really hard to say, it's hard to know, and it's hard to spot these things because we see these people and we think we know them and we really don't. You can't force someone to talk to a therapist, but you can encourage them and try to give them reasons to help them out with that. And I think that's where we can get a be- do a better job of that. And that's what we should be encouraging. Yes, definitely. Well, that went by quickly, guys. I feel like I learned a lot. Uh, we're just actually scratching the surface of this sad saga. I'd like to thank our panel of podcasters for joining us. Thank you guys so much. We have definitely started a conversation worth hearing today. There are so many more layers of the story explored and Aaron Hernandez uncovered that I would love to go over. 
But unfortunately, we're out of time. I'm sorry. And Oxygen's two-night special event will hear from his fiance, Shiana Jenkins, and his defense attorney, Jose Baez, who provide really unique insight into the complexities of Aaron's life. There is just so much to sift through as far as new insights and discoveries are concerned in this two-night event. I want to thank all the panelists for being here today and offering their incredible insights. There's really more um, to discuss than you can imagine, and it all starts March 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, only on Oxygen. Thanks, everyone. This is sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and the previous program is promoted by Oxygen.